Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's October 31st, 2018. It is Halloween. I'm not wearing any costume of any kind. I don't know what Michael Warren is wearing or what David Byler is wearing, but they joined me on the podcast today. So uh, should we do something for Halloween? Should we just mark it? It's like, you know, are, are you more scared than usual today? <laughs> I know. Okay, let's, let's, David Buhler, maybe we could we could we could reintroduce us with ghoulish uh, names. I don't know. That's maybe we could like reverse. I don't know. Produce this with with scary Halloween <laughs> music. So, what scares you the most today? I didn't even give you guys a heads up that I was going to ask that. I mean, there's so many things that are scary. It's almost like we don't need Halloween because we were pre scared. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I, just. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the the possibility that um, you know of not knowing what will happen next Tuesday on election day is 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 is, is frightening. Like it's like a weird thing now that we we now like are, are conditioned after 2016 to just basically believe that like anything could happen that Republicans yeah, could like right. maintain control of both houses or Democrats could and like uh, we could be talking about you know articles of impeachment being drawn up in like three three months so it's just like it's the it's it's what's scary is the unknown Charlie actually that that is that is true because and this is gonna be kind of a wonky podcast but for all wonks they're haunted by the thought we know nothing we, we prove <laughs> we know nothing and you, I'm starting to have flashbacks to what what I said in 2016 and the predictions and how incredibly confident I I was about 2016 and I didn't know anything. So you'll be right one day. And, what, what you said in 2016, you'll be right about one day. Just, just keep that in mind. Well, that's right. If you, if, if you, if you just basically plant your flag somewhere, <laughs> you will be right sooner or later. Okay. So David Bailey, you have a piece that's getting a lot of attention today. Um, essentially arguing that uh, Beto mania is sort of a mirage down in Texas, that there's been shall we say, a certain amount of uh, motivated reasoning. So give me your take about what's happening in Texas and what is not happening in Texas. The piece kind of argues uh, three different points that sort of connect to each other. So the first one is essentially that Ted Cruz has been ahead this whole time. That if you look at the polling data, if you look at other helpful data points like past election results in Texas, incumbency, so on and so forth, if you just look at a variety of factors, which actually my you know stats-driven Senate model, uh, it's called swing seat, does, you see that uh, Ted Cruz has had a well above 50% uh, win probability for the entirety of this election. Um, my model puts his win probability at 90%, so that doesn't rule out a Beto upset. That's not a total certainty. And some of the other models are a little bit less bullish on Cruz, but basically the data hmm. has pointed in one direction and continues to point in one direction, which is towards Cruz being the likely winner. Um, the second point is that this race is a lot more generic than people might think. So, you know, if you've been following the race, you've probably seen God knows how many like fawning profiles of Beto O'Rourke and, you know, all of these uh, over the top descriptions of the race and how different it is than usual and so on and so forth. But if you just look at kind of the basic facts of the race, you look at President Trump's overall approval rating. You look at how red Texas has been in the last couple elections. You look at the fact that Cruz is an incumbent and big state incumbents are a little weaker than small state incumbents. And you kind of do some back of the envelope math and add it all up. 
that math suggests that Cruz should be ahead by, you know, kind of the maybe high single digits, possibly low double digits. And Real Clear Politics has him ahead by seven points. So there's not that big of a difference between what we'd expect out of a really pretty generic race in this year and what's actually happening in Texas. And it's it's interesting. You can also dig into the favorability numbers of both candidates. And, you know, these numbers are, are uh, dynamic. They change over time. But in the most recent set of numbers, you've seen Cruz actually having a higher net favorability than O'Rourke and neither of them having tremendously high or tremendously no number, low numbers. So Cruz's reputation of being this universally loathed person doesn't really hold for Texas likely voters. And Texas likely voters don't spend all day gazing adoringly at Beto O'Rourke. They view him, you know, similarly to how I would think that Texas likely voters would view, a, you know, better than average, but not, you know, outstanding necessarily candidate. So the caveat here with these first two points is that the polls could be wrong. And if they are, um, if, you know, they're underestimating O'Rourke and he wins or he comes close, you know, the results trump the polls that the actual mm -hmm. votes sure. are better evidence than what's happening in the survey data. But, you know, the polls could also be underestimating Cruz. The polls could be totally right. Kind of where they are right now is our, our best guide of where public opinion is. And Right now, things look kind of normal. So those are kind of my first two okay. major points. So, so Michael Warren, I want to get your perspective sitting in Washington, D.C., looking back on this, you know, assuming that, that in fact, uh, this is a more or less conventional election. Can you explain the Beto mania? And, and, and I don't mean just the Beto mania on the ground, the, the national media Beto mania, the focus. Is it just simply a reflection of how desperate Democrats were for a star you know, the, the the next Obama, how 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 much of a vacuum there was for somebody who uh, they, they wanted to believe was the was the next uh, charismatic messiah. Yeah. And David uh, gets to this point in his uh, terrific piece this morning, which is um, there is a kind of short term hunger among the Democrats uh, to find somebody to fall in love with. And Beto um it's it's one of these chicken or egg things. Did did all the the sort of excitement and fawning over him by the national media uh, did that create uh, this big fundraising juggernaut that Beto became, uh, or was it the other way around? I don't know. Um, so I think that's uh, I think that's part of it. There's also this kind of. Um, deep-seated hatred of Ted Cruz among the national media, um, uh, you know, not entirely uh, uh, unwarranted, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, stemming back from the 2013 shutdown fight in which uh, Cruz claimed incorrectly that uh, that they could actually repeal Obamacare this way. Of course, that wasn't what was going to happen. Uh, and then uh, the, 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 I think, residual feeling uh, among a lot of liberals and among even mainstream folks um, – that uh, that that he's sort of after putting up something of a fight against Trump in the Republican primary that Cruz has kind of laid down his weapons and has joined up with with Trump and you know there's a bit of a hypocritical uh, uh, attack on Cruz so the, and, and just the general sort of uh, uh, oiliness of Cruz I think rubs a lot <laughs> of people the wrong way and so there's this uh, this kind of wishful film on that oh this could yeah, be added to the idea that Texas right like this whole idea that Texas is, can turn blue and we're going to turn it blue. First it was Wendy Davis and, um, and actually better work is, I think is going to do better than Wendy Davis did against, uh, against Greg Abbott back in 2014. So, um, hmm. this is, 
Um, this is sort of a the, the the great dream, I think, of of, of Democrats and liberals. Um, that has a lot to do with it as well. You know, I've I've been arguing, um, you know, privately and and publicly though that 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 candidates matter, and I'm I'm shifting to what's going to happen in Wisconsin, and you know, sometime today, by the time you listen to this, we'll we'll have the results of the Marquette University Law Poll, um, where we'll see how Scott Walker is doing against Tony Evers and Tammy Baldwin is doing against Leah Vukmir, and. You know, one of the things that I've argued is that all the people who are writing the obituaries for Walker, who could still lose, um, is that they forget that uh, candidate uh, candidate selection is relevant. And Tony Evers is the Democratic nominee. He's sort of if you went into if Democrats went into a laboratory and they wanted to come up with the absolute opposite of Andrew Gillum and Beto O'Rourke, they would come up with Tony Evers. I mean, the guy the guy is bland on bland. He is one of the least charismatic candidates I have ever seen. Um, but, you know, as I'm looking around the country, and I want to get your sense on this, uh, D- D- David, you know, the candidate matters um, standard doesn't seem to be applying in a lot of these elections that have been completely nationalized. I was reading a piece this morning, I think it was in the uh, maybe the Daily 202 newsletter from the Washington Post, where you had, uh, you know, political observers noting that you had a lot of voters showing up and they they either didn't know anything about the local candidate and they didn't care about the local candidate, that, that they saw their vote as being cast as part of a national referendum. Uh, and that this is a much, much more nationalized midterm election than the standard midterm election. Uh, does that sound right to you? Um, I would actually take that argument kind of a, a step further and say that a lot of midterms are nationalized. And yeah, you know, you can go into the data and you can get into some wonky discussions about how the incumbency advantage is decreasing and how, you know, the power of partisanship in some of these congressional districts is increasing. But I think the fundamental theory around midterms now is sort of the same as the fundamental theory has been in the past, which is that it's a referendum on the president mm-hmm. and his party. And if the president and his party are unpopular, then you have big consequences for them in the midterms. If they're doing fine, then, you know, usually they still lose seats and lose some power, but the losses are are kind of mitigated by that. So to me, one of the better rules for analyzing politics in the Trump era, at least in terms of elections, maybe not in terms of policy or presidential behavior or so on and so forth, but in terms of elections is to rely on kind of the things that have worked for a long time. I mean, the 2016 election, if you just looked at the economic factors, was supposed to be close. And it was really close. You know, the 2018 elections look like they're going to be a referendum on Trump. And kind of the the question is not so much whether or not that's true. It's just how that translates across different districts and different states that are up. At least this is how I think. So so are you saying every single election, everybody says, you know, this one's going to be completely different. And you're saying that they generally know that you that they generally are still driven by these these fundamentals, these underlying fundamentals. I, I do think so, you know, and it's it's the whole problem of induction, the philosophical <laughs> thing, right? Uh, eventually that that theory could be wrong and politics changes. So, you know, maybe at some point in the future, midterms will not fundamentally be referendums on the president and his or her party. But I I just I think that if you try to go ad hoc, especially in the Trump era where it's easy to go ad hoc and easy not to rely on the history, you do open yourself up for 
up to making some errors and sure. up to thinking things have changed more than they okay. have. Okay. Well, let's do a quick lightning round because I want to get to a number of other things, including uh, the, the debate over uh, birthright citizenship. Uh, the Weekly Standard has a strong editorial uh, up up today on this. So let's do a, a quick uh, state of the race as you see it. Uh, Florida. Uh, Nelson gaining, uh, as the fundamentals have suggested, but still not put away. Okay. Uh, Arizona. Uh, McSally gaining in sort of the medium to long term, but cinema still holding on to, you know, narrower advantage. Yeah, the polls seem to be very mixed there. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you get polls that look like the ones from this last summer where, you know, cinema was in the high single digits. Sometimes you get McSally leads. You you got a real spread there. Um, the model translates that into about two to one advantage for uh, cinema with the, the latest round of hmm. polls, but it's a little bit, the model is designed to be a little bit, have a shorter attention span right okay. now so okay. that it can try to catch late shifts. Anyways, okay. Yeah. N- Nevada. Total toss up. The m- closest state to 50 50 on the entire Senate map. Okay. Montana. Uh, tester, solid advantage. Hmm. Um, 80 20 probability right now based on what we have. But I genuinely do want more polling in that state. Um, if, I, if I had to pick one state where I'd want more polling, I would pick Montana. Montana, maybe Indiana second place. Okay, uh, Missouri. Missouri, Holly uh, having sort of a late boomlet. I would say if you were to use the sort of parlance of expert handicappers, that one's gone from uh, toss-up to tilt Republican. It's uh, mm-hmm. between 55 and 60% Holly win probability according to our model, um, which is an increase uh, from where it was in previous weeks. North Dakota. Uh, that one still looks really somewhere between leans and likely for uh, Kramer. You've got a uh, fourth poll now that sort of post Kavanaugh that confirms that he has a significant edge. If I remember right, I don't have it in front of me. I think it was a, a nine point lead. So it's a yeah. little bit less than what we've seen in some of the other polls. So, but nine points is nothing to, to thumb your nose at. So that's a solid looks like a solid plus one for the Republicans right there. At, at this point, if Height Camp won, I would say that'd be a, a real upset. It, yeah. Indiana, you mentioned uh, before you needed more polling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indiana is closer. This is the one where if I had to pick one state where it, like if I could only pick one state and said and say that, you know, this is the state where I think the result will end up different from the forecast. I would probably pick Indiana right now. We've got about 60% uh, Donnelly probability, which is uh, really pretty close to a toss up. It's kind of a tilts democratic, but you've seen Indiana has some restrictive laws in terms of what polling can and can't be done in the state. Um, So you get less data from there, but the data that we have gotten shows that uh, bronze position has improved over the last few months and that that Hmm. state might be heading towards the fundamentals last note on that it's worth remembering that in 2016 you didn't see that uh surge for young against buy until like the very very last minute so that's something to keep an eye out for yeah tennessee uh tennessee uh somewhere in the leans likely republican range um i i think we have it in the 70 to 80 percent blackburn win probability that's one where uh, Mike actually did some great reporting on this one. Um, it seems like it's a race that's about political identity. And if you're in Tennessee, uh, the Republican tends to win that kind of a contest. Uh, there was a mix- or there was a sorry, Blackburn boost uh, directly after the Kavanaugh hearings, which I think is also notable. 
Yeah, and it's also interesting that the, the the Democrats' approval rating is substantially higher than Blackburn, but uh, it, it does seem to be coming down to the partisan identification. Okay, New Jersey. I, I think New Jersey has been kind of an overrated mm-hmm. uh, Democrat or Republican opportunity this whole time. Um, from a Republican standpoint, the fact that Democrats spent money there is kind of mission accomplished, in my view. You you do have the chance for an upset, possibly, but. Um, Really, what it looks like is that Menendez is leading by less than he would have if he wasn't, you know, so scandal ridden. Um, but he's still ahead. West Virginia. Uh, Manchin uh, is in about the same position as Tester, according to the model, which is 80 percent win probability. There's, uh, you know, kind of a chance that a bunch of uh, Trump approving undecideds all break against him. But. Uh, with Manchin, you have just a different candidate than almost anywhere else on the Senate map. He is the only Democratic senator who voted for Brett Kavanaugh. Um, he votes with Trump and the Republicans a solid amount of the time. He's just kind of a, a an edge case that um, is sort of an exception to the rule of partisanship always dominating and being the main factor. Okay. Mike Warren, I want to do a shift back a little bit looking at the the overall in, environment. Uh, th- this year seems to have been, or the last several months seem to have been, that uh, we had all of the buzz, uh, all the conventional wisdom about the blue wave, and then people began to go, oh, oh maybe that's not going to be a blue wave. Maybe it's going to be a blue tickle, a, a trickle. And you began to uh, have uh, some real momentum among um, Republicans, especially after Kavanaugh. But now the conventional wisdom seems to be shifting back to say that uh, that no, uh, that this this race is not closing well for the Republicans. Uh, it does feel like Donald Trump is throwing everything up against the wall, um, uh, which is not necessarily a a, a confidence sounding move. And then you have just some strange developments, and I just get 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 your thoughts. Uh, you know, Steve King. A Republican from Iowa has been out there for some time. He's been endorsing uh, white nationalists running in, you know, Canadian mayoral elections and been giving interviews to, you know, uh, right wing sites in 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 Austria. But he's been, you know, he's been, you know, he's, he's, Steve, he's Steve King. And uh, yesterday, though, you had the head of the National Republican Congressional Committee uh, denounce him, essentially excommunicate him. And there's tremendous, seems to be some tremendous pushback from businesses in Iowa, from groups like the Anti-Defamation League. So let's just talk about this. I mean, Steve King, um, and there's polls suggesting that Steve King might be in trouble in a close district. Um, this this is one of those moments where, why is this happening right at the end of this campaign? That Republicans have, or have Republicans decided that they may have a white nationalist problem and they need to do something about it? Yes, I think they have. I think there's a, this is a, um, uh, a move from Stivers uh, of desperation, right? Of a, of a sense that um, this is a story that could uh, somehow leak over into uh, other house races, other other house races where Republicans are really trying to hold on. I think in in, in districts that are less like Steve King's rural uh, Western Iowa uh, district, and more like uh, the 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 real killer districts, these suburban districts in outside of major cities, um, with uh, that that may have gone for Hillary Clinton or went very very close for Donald Trump, um, that Republicans are desperately trying to hold on to and and um you, you have to imagine this this is i don't think necessarily noble of of stivers this is about damage control and trying to make sure that really? this this, this hmm. doesn't this doesn't um i mean i 
I, I don't mean to ascribe uh, 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 bad bad intentions on Stivers. I'm sure he is, uh, you know, appalled by by white nationalism and uh, and 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 the right. sort of far right neo Nazism that. But, that but King he thinks is this is a problem. He thinks with. this is a problem around the country now for Republicans. It, uh, po- very possibly, and or, or at the very least, that it could have that this, this has gotten so much national attention, and Steve King is again kind of like Ted Cruz, like somebody who draws national attention uh, to himself. Uh, and the mainstream media sort of loves to hate King, um, and uh, and and I think that there's a, this is sort of a, there's it's a no brainer. You kind of cut your losses on, on this, um, and it does suggest that they think that King might really be in trouble and, and could actually lose his race, which would be remarkable. It would be remarkable. Let's talk about uh, the caravan. Let's talk about the uh, birthright citizenship and the way that Donald Trump is uh, is closing. But before we do that, today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Calm. It just seems so timely that this is one of our partners. Do you ever feel stressed or anxious? And if you do, because of course the answer is yes, um, are you looking for some coping tools? I mean, have you ever thought about meditating? Have you think that it might benefit you? You have trouble sleeping? That's why we're excited to partner with Calm, which is the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. It gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, more mindful life. Just five minutes of calm can change your day. And I know you may sound that sounds kind of generic, but I actually I, I have downloaded it, and it's remarkable. They have uh, stories. They have meditations. Um, it's done at an incredibly sophisticated uh, level. Uh, they have prominent uh, actors who will, will read these stories. And, you know, frankly, just five, ten minutes stepping out of the stuff we're talking about makes a big difference. So for a limited time, the Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. And you can get started today at calm.com slash standard. That is calm.com slash standard. I really do highly recommend this. Okay, Michael Warren. Um, normally the editorials in the weekly standard are, uh, are unsigned. They are the editors, but you have been uh, busted. You have been outed. You are the author of the piece today that basically says that, uh, Donald Trump's suggestion that he can, uh, change the, uh, constitutional, uh, provisions about, uh, um, uh, birthright citizenship by executive order. Let's talk about this. I mean, it's pretty obvious why he's throwing this up against the wall at the last minute to, uh, gin up his base, but, um, it is an amazing moment for conservatives to have a Republican president suggesting that he could either amend the Constitution or overturn a Supreme Court decision by executive order. Right. Well, I, I do want to take quick, uh, 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 you know, uh, disagreement with you on uh, on what this does to sort of uh, rile up his base or or get his base energized. I mean, this this issue of birthright citizenship, maybe it does end up sort of having that that net effect. But it's kind of it's even among conservatives uh, and even among sort of immigration hot conservatives, this, this whole birthright citizenship thing, the issue is kind of a fringe issue and has been a fringe issue for a bit. So it's it's like it's like interesting to a very small number of people, uh, including, you know, um, uh, people who used to work for or currently work for President Trump. Um, but it, it's it's kind of um, – th- that's what seems so odd about it. There seems to be no real um, uh, impetus for this other than it's it's kind of um, – it, it kind of makes everybody else uh, in the media and his opponents and, and uh, even within the Republican Party kind of go crazy when he says it. So maybe that's why he does it. But um, – 
Yes, I I think the editorial opens up with a salvo, I think, against President Obama, who, if you want to trace the the lineage of this Mm -hmm. sort of executive order mania, I think you can go uh, to him. This is uh, uh, President Obama said he he was unable to use executive order to change immigration law. And this was his argument over and over again for why Congress needed to pass the DREAM Act. Um, And then when Congress couldn't pass the DREAM Act, he went ahead and did it anyway through executive order, um, which I think caused a lot of chaos and 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 and, and damage long term to the constitutional order, to the rule of law, and just for these these people who are affected by um, uh, the the DACA program that he created out of his executive order. So um, I think that was a lesson that clearly Donald Trump has not learned because he's trying to do the same thing. And in fact, in the same uh, sort of broad issue area in the area of immigration. The you 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 do mention that there is a legal debate about uh, the the constitutionality of birthright citizenship, but it's a it 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 is at best a very very lopsided one. The uh, the, uh, the the Supreme Court decisions seem to be pretty clear that uh, the the Fourteenth Amendment applies to anyone who has been born here. Of course, they didn't deal with the children of illegal immigrants, but I don't know of anyone. Who thinks that an executive order would be able to handle this? By the way, I'm always fascinated by what goes on in the Conway household. It's interesting that George Conway um, has co-written a an op-ed piece for the Washington Post with Neil Katyal. George Conway, of course, being Kellyanne Conway's husband, in which he says this proposal in birthright citizenship is not a close call at all. That this all came out of, and a little bit of history, you know, it comes out of, you know, Dred Scott decision that said that slaves and the children of slaves weren't citizens. And so the drafters of the 14th Amendment, you know, very specifically were, you know, saying, no, everybody born in, you know, born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. And and, and then they had, like, you know, two minor exceptions, which would be, you know, foreign combatants who are here invading the country uh, or, you know, the children of, of diplomats. But uh, and then the U.S. Supreme Court in the the decision in 1898, you know, held that the 14th Amendment affirms the ancient and fundamental rule of citizenship by birth within the territory, including all children here born of resident aliens. So it seems to be settled law. It seems to be, I suppose you could make an argument that it's bad public policy. I mean, some people make that, 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 and even Lindsey Graham has obviously made that, that point. Harry Reid in the past once thought it was bad public policy. Um, You could possibly make the argument that you could change this by constitutional action. But to suggest an executive order, I mean, it's just sort of the cynicism of it that we're a few days away from the midterm elections. I need to change the subject. I need to go back to my greatest hits, my my one-page playbook. And I guess the question I want to ask you, Michael, and David, weigh, weigh in on this, you know, th- you know, we keep talking about the president ginning up the base and working up the base, but uh, Michael, I think you hit on something. It is not guaranteed that this works. Uh, that this, in fact, you know, is going to be as effective as we might think in the wake of 2016. And in fact, I could imagine this driving more voters and the you know su- suburban voters away from Republicans. I mean, I I, I get I actually kind of get a whiff of of desperation throwing this stuff up against the wall. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, I, I I have a hard time really kind of sussing out where how it uh, affects or if it even does have an effect on the election. I mean, at this point, you do get the sense that um, so many things are already baked in. It's a question mm-hmm. of sort of, I mean, this is sort of the joke about about uh, punditry before an election, but it really is kind of true. And it's all about turnout. You know, who comes to the polls, yeah. who actually gets out and votes. Um, does this really change one thing or the other? Uh, I don't really know, but it does. Uh, I think reveal if this is the uh, the case that this is just sort of another uh, kind of trial balloon. Uh, uh, Let's remember, Charlie, we don't have any even text of an executive order. This was something that President Trump said when asked about it by Jonathan Swan of Axios in an interview. Uh, Jonathan uh, claims he was working on a story about about this possible executive order. And and President Trump even seemed surprised that Jonathan knew about it. Um, And sort of he said, yes, we're going to do it. Well, I mean, how good is Trump's word on actually following through on like a specific, uh, you know, policy proposal, um, uh, the way, you know, the way he says it's going to get done. So let's, you know, let's be a little cautious about about sort of uh, inferring more to this than there really Mm -hmm. is. But um, I I think that it's it, it is revealing to me the the, the whole conversation uh, sort of a, a about the way that the president kind of views the idea of what citizenship is and what and, and what is what is gained for both the individual who gets citizenship uh, and for the country as a whole um, to bring in people um, uh, into sort of into citizenship in the United States um, and, and 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 that I think is what. Uh, it kind of kind of baffles me. It's very it's very unconservative. It's, I think it's very un-American, uh, frankly. Um, uh, the question I, I will say this though: the question about illegal immigrants um, and, and the children of illegal immigrants that seems to be the the area of uh, where there might be the most debate or, or the most sort of serious debate right. over this policy uh, because wise, il- yeah. because illegal immigration essentially wasn't around uh, when when the amendment was passed or even in 1898. Um, the, the the concept is relatively new but um the 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 principle i think doesn't really change which is which is that um birthright citizenship is a long-standing practice long-standing policy um and i think there's a moral case to be made um uh for for the idea that that people can come here uh and uh, and be born into this country live in this country be a part of this country and uh and be in every way a citizen and that includes legally yeah, so at the David, what I've read about the Arizona Senate race, and I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, but you know, has been that uh, the the one issue that seems to be driving you know a, a lot of the debate there is is about health care, and I think uh, Martha McSally has has essentially said that you know if she loses, it's going to be because of you know the the push on health care and pre existing conditions. But how does an issue like this play in a border state like that? Uh, does it? Yeah. And, and and Michael also raises the question. You know, are there any votes to be moved in places like Arizona or Texas uh, or West Virginia? You know, a last minute issue like this. Does this make any difference at all? Right. So this is an interesting thing. A a couple weeks ago, I got Google to do some, you know, specialized queries of their, you know, giant set of data around um, some of the search terms that get uh search for in these various swing states Mm -hmm. in Arizona. Um, I found a little bit of an asymmetry. It showed up in the polling as well, where Republicans were pretty interested in immigration and people were, you know, searching 
immigration along with McSally's name. Mm. Um, this I'm going off memory on this. I'd have to mm. double check the data to be 100 percent sure. Um, but re- it's an issue that Republicans care about a lot. But that's a little bit asymmetric that uh, Democrats in this cycle at least aren't as tuned into by comparison. Uh, like you said, healthcare was a big one on that side. So, I mean, yeah, I guess you could argue that there's there's ways to gin up the base in Texas or Arizona or uh, border states like this. I just think that most of the analyses stop before they need to. Usually that's kind of the end of the sentence that Trump can gin mm-hmm. up the base by doing X. And what you pointed out earlier in your question is true, that there's multiple moving parts. Is There's also swing voters. Um, there's also Democratic intensity and kind of failing to think through those things, I think, makes your well, analysis the, incomplete, you know? Yeah, well, let's, let me let me go back to this. And, and something that Michael, Michael was talking about before, though, mm-hmm. that, that let's try to connect the dots here that that maybe voter, voters don't decide based on – well, most voters, I don't think, make their decision based on one issue or another issue. You know, sometimes there is a mood. There is a mm-hmm. tone. There, there, is, there are motivations. And – Going back to the Steve King issue, that there's anxiety among Republicans that that might change the image. You 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 have the Trump problem in the wake of the violence last uh, last 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 week. You you have you know all of the back and forth about the caravan. If in fact the race for House of Representatives is going to be decided by suburban college educated men and women. This would strike me as breaking very bad for Republicans. All of these things, all of the atmospherics of the sort of the nativism, the 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 tone deafness, the the fact that the Republican Party has wandered off into some dangerous place. And again, the Steve King being the most extreme aspect. But we've seen this how you no know, one, you know, you know, one one dicey you know, congressman remember back in 2006, the last time Democrats won big in an, in an off year election, you know, you do nationalize these things. So I do wonder whether or not this is one of those moments where Trump's instincts are, are wrong, that he is in fact going to be feeding, uh, democratic intensity, Michael. Uh, yeah, I, I was thinking about this because what's the sort of, uh, differentiating factor between 2018 and 2016? It's that Trump isn't on the ballot. Um, and if there's one thing that we can sort of, uh, 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 take, uh, from, from what we've learned in the Trump era of politics is that, um, Trump does not translate to other races. Um, uh, that that the, the Trump effect, say, among Republicans is not a guarantee that the Republican he supports, the Republican, you know, he puts his arm around at the at the rally, um, definitely uh, get, you know, gets the win. And, um, you know, we also have to keep in mind that the dynamics in 2016 are different than they are in 2018. Um, after eight years of, of the Democratic Party in power in the White House, you had a weak presidential candidate in Hillary Clinton who had all kinds of legal and ethical problems uh, and image problems. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, you also had just the, the weird kind of way in which uh, Trump won the Electoral College by mm-hmm. by running the table uh, or ra- rather running the Electoral College table by winning on the margins in those uh, sort of northern Midwestern states. Um, and it's 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 one of these things that in retrospect makes his whole team look like geniuses. Um, but uh, but it's just as much uh, sort of you could you could give mm-hmm. as much credit to chance. Uh, I don't think that those dynamics apply in, in 
2018, uh, which is why it's so hard to sort of uh, say, well, okay, what happened in 2016? Well, that is therefore can inform us about what happened in 2018. Um, there's a there's a whole right. different yeah. set of dynamics and, and factors here. Yeah, and 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 you know one of the things that uh, we we have noticed though is that is that there are these these breaks near the end. Uh, you know the the electorate breaks in one way or the other. And in 2016, there was a rather dramatic break across the board, particularly in those upper Great Lakes states, like the one I'm in right now. You know, toward Trump, I just wonder what the, what the mood is right now, and the voters that are that are in play, how they're reacting to the. Uh, I think this the incredibly, you know, cynical ploy of trying to make America terrified of this uh, the, this caravan, um, you know, m- m- moving north as if that is, you know, it's it's almost like a cartoon image of look, they're coming, they're coming for your women and your jobs, and they're bringing all of these diseases and everything. And really, I'm. Um, Again, I'm going to see how I'm going to be very interested to see how all of that plays out uh, at uh, at the end. By the way, we haven't even talked about my absolute favorite story of the day. I mean, this is like one that I, I just I, I can't believe this is one of the strangest stories of a strange political era. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with it, even though we didn't talk about it. The, this plot by some of these right-wing online grifters, Jacob Wall, uh, Jim Hoft of uh, Gateway Pundit, who apparently were about to launch this huge smear campaign against special special prosecutor Robert Mueller, going out and trying to imply that he had been involved in you know misconduct with women. And they, the way that it has imploded in the most spectacular possible way uh and to fully Jacob, under and to fully yeah. understand it charlie you almost yeah. have to be like immersed in this bizarre online world because the the, mm-hmm. the the people who sort of exposed these guys were like the crazy left-wingers who were always popping up in trump's feed the krasenstein brothers or whoever right. they are who, who are constantly like replying to donald trump tweets saying uh you know you're a fascist and we're going to bring you down i mean it's like it's like you the the writers in the writer's room you know would have thought this is too crazy for us to come up with um the story. Oh so my God! It's, it's, it's yeah, incredible. No, it, yeah, and, and it, it's uh, it, you know, even guys like you know J- Jim Hoft, who has survived, uh, you know, inaccuracies, hoaxes, and frauds. Uh, even he is backing away from all of this. But I just found the most hilarious part that this guy, guy Jacob Wall, who is you know the super Trumpy grifter, um, created this this tried to create this company, this investigative company with a website, <laughs> and but but he left all of the fingerprints that it's his own Google account. The the voicemail goes to his mom. <laughs> The the, the the photos the photos of the employees are you know a, a famous Israeli model uh, Christoph Waltz the Academy Award winning actor I mean it's it's terrific it's 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 amazing. No, somebody. I think it was uh, Jonah Goldberg who said, uh, "You know, if, th- if this story is true, which apparently it is. We we, we need an I Tanya type movie um, <laughs> about this." Uh, but you know, I, you know, had this not blown up so, so spectacularly, I guess my dark side is thinking, yes, but it would have gone out there, you know, into the social media, uh, you know, ecosystem, and that e- even when there was nothing there, there would have been people who would have said, "Well, but maybe, maybe it's true. Who knows?" And this is sort of an indication, though, of how far some people are willing to go. Well, it is uh, less than a week until the election. It is uh, Halloween. Do you guys go trick-or-treating anymore, or are you too old? I, my my uh, my son is going uh, to, today, uh, tonight, so uh, but I think my wife's going to take him. I 
put uh, put the baby to bed and hand out candy. And I'm what I'm really excited about is uh, getting my spooky sounds coming out uh, of uh, you know for when I open the door uh, to scare all the neighborhood kids. That's that's like that's 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 my favorite part of Halloween. Yeah, it used to be my favorite part. I used to have this really scary old man mask, which is really uh, good, this rubber mask. I mean, and uh, what I would do is when the doorbell would ring, I would sort of pop up with the, with the mask. And then you know, I, I made a little girl cry. So I figured, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> See, I don't even need the mask, Charlie. That's that's the beauty of, of, of being me. So that's I just. David, you're in, Cal- you're in California, right? You don't celebrate yes. Halloween anymore out there, do they? <laughs> no, no, we do. Actually, um, but you have to dress like a vegetable, right? I mean, <laughs> we're we're dressed up uh, this year. I'm going to be Mario, and she's Princess Peach, and we're going to hand out candy to the kids. There's, you know, a number of kids in our neighborhood, so I think that'll be fun. We need pictures. We do need pictures. Uh, David <laughs> Michael, thank you for joining me, and thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.